Piper meant more by Calvinism. Absolutely, he meant Calvinist doctrine, um, including, of course, Calvinist soteriology. Absolutely, he meant Calvinist polity. But he also meant a Calvinist worldview, which is really that implication of God's sovereignty over every area of life. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with Jessica and Robert Joustra about the new book they've edited, Calvinism for a Secular Age. The days surrounding the release of this episode we will also be releasing a series of written pieces and reviews interacting with this important new book. You can find links to that continuing conversation in the show notes. Thanks again for tuning in. I first heard the name Abraham Kuyper in a talk by John Piper. The year was 2004, and I was attending John Piper's conference on sex and the supremacy of God. I had discovered Piper during college and was drinking deeply from the Calvinist cisterns for which Piper is known. Unsurprisingly, Piper's reference to Kuiper was to the famous every square inch line from the Stone Lectures. At that time in my life, an endorsement from John Piper meant everything, and so I made a mental note to read something by Kuiper and this led me finally to read the Stone Lectures for myself. As I read, I remember thinking two things. First, this is a different sort of Calvinism than I'm used to. It was more expansive and somehow not fixated on the five points of Calvinism. Second, the way he talks about non-Western culture leaves a lot to be desired. As a Filipino-American, I found his assumption of Western cultural superiority to be naive at best and at times, deeply racist. I set the lectures aside, not knowing how important they would become to me when I returned to graduate school a decade later. I've told the story elsewhere of my move from Piper to Kuiper. For now, it is enough to say that the world and life vision set forth in the lectures became vital to my outlook. Nevertheless, I have sometimes found myself in the position of clarifying and defending the Kuiperian vision to those who are suspicious— During my doctoral studies, I had a neighbor who hated Kuiper's lectures so much that he burned them in the community fire pit. Last year, a student who had been assigned the text carried the book around and read the more objectionable passages out loud for anyone who wanted to listen. At a school deeply shaped by Kuiperian sensibilities, both the apartments and honors program bear his name, he was concerned that we would simply gloss over Kuiper's flaws. But anyone who belongs to a living tradition knows that it is much like belonging to a family. There can simultaneously be much to celebrate and much to lament. There are gifts we've received and baggage we carry. We must name and own the dysfunctional bits, not to shift the blame to others, but to take responsibility for how we continue in the time and place we've been called. This leads me to give hearty affirmation to a new book edited by Jessica and Robert Joustra. To quote from my own blurb on the back of the book, Calvinism for a Secular Age offers a welcome tonic, amplifying my gratitude and acknowledging my grief, making it an essential companion to Kuiper's lectures. 
clarifies his aims, complicates his legacy, and challenges his flaws. When necessary, it moves forward by reading Kuiper against himself. Most importantly, it continues Kuiper's project, offering a generative and generous vision for all of life, one sorely needed in our secular age. So I'm joined now by two guests, doctors, Jessica and Robert Joustra, both teach at Redeemer University, where Jessica is an assistant professor of religion and theology, and Rob is associate professor of politics and international studies. They happen to be married to each other, and although they have many scholarly accolades, their most notable contribution to the world thus far is their son Jacob, born almost a year ago. So Jess, Rob, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, aside from Jacob, you have a lot of academic projects that you're involved with, things you've been working on. But what we're most interested in at the moment for this conversation is the new book that you've co-edited, Calvinism for a Secular Age, published by IVP Academic. So let's start with the title of this book, Calvinism for a Secular Age. A few weeks ago, at least relative to when we recorded this, Kristen Dumay, who's also one of the endorsers on the back of the book, blurb the book on Twitter, along with a hashtag, not that kind of Calvinist. And it generated this really respectable amount of traffic and questions, what is what kind of Calvinist then? And I also noticed that this book was the top new release in Calvinist Christianity. Congratulations. (laughs) And so help our listeners out. What do you mean by Calvinism and how might we distinguish it from other varieties of Calvinism? What's shared in common and what's distinctive about the kind of Calvinism that this book represents? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a very generous endorsement um, from from Kristen. We're very grateful. I, I remember when I started studying with my doctoral supervisor um, more than a decade ago, I guess, at the University of Bath, we were talking about Calvin and Calvinism, and he'd done kind of a twirl teaching through uh, Michigan. And, and I, we, we were, I was asking him questions about this, and he said, well, you know, I really appreciate Calvin. And then he paused and he said, but less so Calvin as interpreted through the West Michigan Dutch. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean by that? You know, what kind of, what kind of Calvinism do you mean? And I, you know, I think there is something of a, um, a disagreement over kind of where to go with this term and its reception. And it's a little easier for me, I think, to speak into it because I think it's reception and, and it's sort of the disagreements over it have a peculiarly sort of American flavor. And so as a Canadian Calvinist, I can sort of look out from the outside and, you know, indulge in a favorite Canadian pastime by, you know, uh, diminishing our neighbors to the South. But I, I, I do think that what we're trying to get after is the kind of Calvinism that Kuiper is introducing in his lectures on Calvinism. And that is a Calvinism that is consistent with Calvin. I want to be clear about that. So, I mean, I think when a lot of people think sort of shorthand Calvinism, and certainly this is um, the impression that, you know, I get from our students sometimes, they think, soteriology. They think, okay, this is this is all about predestination, right? This is about how God is kind of working out salvation. And, you know, Kuiper was excited about the doctrine of soteriology. He thought it was important, you know, he thought those ideas were were important. But and I think this is the thing that he that that sort of he introduces in his his lectures on Calvinism in such a kind of helpful and fundamental way. He makes the argument that those doctrines around, you know, soteriology and predestination, these are collateral effects. These are logical conclusions. These are important conclusions, but they're conclusions of a prior doctrine, which is the recognition of the sovereignty of God. Mm. And if God is at the center of this drama, if God is, you know, if it's, if it's this relationship 
with this creative creator God that's sort of at the center of this drama, then that has dramatic implications, not just for the salvation of human beings, but actually for, as we see, he then lays out in case study after case study in his original lectures, art and politics and science and the whole areas of human life. So for, for me, that's the kind of, that's the, that's the nugget. And I think that's, that's perfectly consistent with Calvinism, right? But it's, that's the neo in Calvinism that I think Kuiper is beginning to sort of center us in and focus us in on in his lectures. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite lines, because it's, it's catchy and short, which is what Kuiper is good at, something that really travels well. He says about Calvinism that the dominating principle of Calvinism, the dominating principle, he says, is not soteriological, it's cosmological. And so he means, again, just like Rob was saying, he means that it's about the sovereignty of the triune God over the cosmos. And this kind of tension that we feel that Rob, I think, articulated really well between different kind of emphases that you see in various ways that Calvinism has been worked out. And here, especially this is within kind of American Christianity, but also beyond the tension that we see between emphasizing sovereignty in terms of soteriology and emphasizing sovereignty in terms of kind of a cosmological sense is already seen in this in the reception of these lectures in Princeton. Uh, Jim Bratt in his introduction and then even more so in his wonderful biography on Abraham Kuyper talks a lot about how Kuyper felt like in some ways his lectures felt a bit flat at Princeton. They were enthusiastic about them, uh, passionate about them, because they all, the Princeton Calvinists and Kuyper, shared this commitment to Calvinism, Calvinism as a set of doctrines, Calvinism as a set of kind of that then worked out into the ecclesial life with a particular kind of polity. But the way Jim says it, and I think this is absolutely right, is that Kuiper meant more by Calvinism. Absolutely, he meant Calvinist doctrine, um, including, of course, Calvinist soteriology. Absolutely, he meant Calvinist polity. But he also meant a Calvinist worldview, which is really that implication of God's sovereignty over every area of life. And so in that, he he takes away the kind of almost singular focus on election, not to say this doesn't matter, but to say this is part of a bigger picture. And I think what's really important is to situate that kind of um, emphasis on wide kind of far ranging cosmological sovereignty and situate that even back in Kelvin himself, because sometimes we think about Kelvin the man as the guy that only talked about predestination. Because when people talk about Calvin, they talk about predestination or tulip, uh, that helpful and not so helpful shorthand of the canons of Dort. But if you look even at Calvin's own writings, his earlier versions of the Institutes, like the 1536 version, only mention predestination in passing, kind of in connection with like the Apostles' Creed and those kinds of things. And it's only later on, after there have been controversies and people have pressed into Calvin, that even Calvin himself spends a lot of time in his institutes talking about it. So the idea that this is kind of, well, Kuiper's really going off script here, and I don't know that anyone would, would say that, but that might be an impression. Kuiper's really going off script from this general focus on soteriology and election really isn't even true if we look back at Calvin himself when we were talking about what kind of Calvinism Kuiper is talking about. We're really talking about the Calvinism that emphasizes wide um, cosmic sovereignty. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it sort of connects 
to what I'm going to ask next. Whenever people get introduced to Kuiper, I'm trying to think of when I got introduced to Kuiper, there's almost the sense, why am I reading this person? You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, those who grew up in Dutch reform spaces take Kuiper for granted and maybe have forgotten why he's even important. But yeah, for the wider Christian world, why continue to look at Kuiper, his lectures, his legacy? I wrote down a quote that Rob wrote early in the book in the introduction. He was sensational, to be sure, but sensational kind of small historical way in his own little context of the Netherlands. Maybe we could justify this tiny exploration if we lived in Holland, if we were all Dutch boys and girls learning our parochial history. But it might seem like an odd choice for an English language introduction intended for Christians in North America a hundred years later. And I feel like you really have articulated a question that many of our students ask, or a question that uh, people who are maybe introduced to Kuiper for the first time, uh, why look at Kuiper? Why look at these lectures again? Uh, what motivated you to pursue this project of sort of repackaging and introducing the lectures for a contemporary audience? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, part of the answer to that question is a little biographical. Um, and I know Jess kind of has her own story here. But when I first encountered uh, Kuiper, you know, I had a very similar kind of reaction. I mean, I, I, I knew, you know, I myself, you know, come from a kind of Dutch background, but I, I can't say that I was especially interested in Dutch history or or any of those sorts of questions. But the first semester that I was in college um, was September of 2001. And um, uh, we were immediately confronted as students in my politics program with the truth that deep, fundamental, even violently conflicting diversity had not somehow gone away after the Cold War. For me, when I came to Kuiper, I, I didn't actually encounter Kuiper as the theologian primarily. I didn't encounter him as the, as the pastor primarily. Um, I encountered him as a faithful Christian trying to answer questions about how to live together amidst deep diversity. And amidst deep, deep diversity that in many cases is not just, you know, not just a kind of shallow diversity, but is really fundamental. Like, you know, we we really believe, you know, it's not just that we have, you know, different cuisine and different kind of ways of kind of organizing, you know, the kinds of diversity we find sort of easy to accommodate, you know, sometimes exciting to accommodate, but the kinds of diversity where we say, I don't know that I can call you my neighbor. I don't know if I can live next to you. I don't know if we can live peaceably together. And Kuiper was trying to answer that question. And to me, that became an incredibly important focal point in the early 2000s. And I think especially, you know, if we thought that was a focal point globally um, in 2001, and certainly it was, it has, I think, come rushing back onto the shores um, of countries in the North Atlantic world, like Canada, like the United States, but also like the United Kingdom, like France, you know, looking at the presidential election there, you know, and some of the sensational candidates uh, like Zemmour that are running there. And we're, we're asking ourselves questions of, well, how do we deal with this deep diversity? And for me, uh, there, are, there are answers in the Christian tradition. And there are sometimes, I think, parts of the Christian tradition that are good at helping us sort this through. I'm, I'm, I'm a passionate advocate of the papal encyclicals and Catholic social thought, um, which I think, especially in the kind of mid to later 20th century, does an extraordinary job of helping us think about some of these challenges. Uh, but I think, you know, in Kuiper, here I found uh, an extraordinary set of answers that said, you know what, um, we don't need to homogenize the diversity you know, we don't need to kind of, you know, pillarize and separate the diversity. We can actually live amidst the diversity, right? Not to say that there aren't boundaries, not to say that there aren't ground rules, but we can negotiate those together and we have some kind of hope for what that would look like. And for me, that's what drove me to Kuiper. And that's also what I think makes him freshly urgent today, because that is at the heart, I think, 
of a lot of anxiety, especially in the United States, but also around the world these days about can we live together well? Yeah, I think that's I think that's excellent. Um, in many ways, both Rob and I came at Kuiper initially because of real practical questions for him. They were political for me. They were I was an undergrad student trying to wrestle through questions of my major at that point was biology. Um, and I was trying to see, you know, why does this why does how does not why? Because I was convinced it did. But how does faith matter here? And I think just going kind of one step behind that, though, there's a really important theological distinction within neo-Calvinism. And neo-Calvinism, again, when we're talking about various kinds of Calvinism, is in some ways a really hard word, especially in an American context, because multiple groups share this title. There are the new Calvinists that sometimes call them neo-Calvinists that are a distinctly American movement of a kind of Calvinism that's much, that's, that's 21st century movement. And then there's the Dutch neo-Calvinism, a 20th century movement um, that has the people of Abraham Kuyper and his colleague Herman Bovink at its foundation. This is the kind of neo-Calvinism that I'm talking about, the Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bovink kind. Uh, and they have this wonderful insight. Of course, they're trying to be deeply small C Catholic and deeply immersed in the long standing at this point tradition of reformed theology. But they're also articulating afresh in a modern world what the gospel means. And they do that through this very I think, compelling articulation of the relationship between nature and grace, that grace restores nature. And hopefully we can dig into that a little bit more later. But this idea that grace, God's grace is not antithetical to the things of this world, but God's grace comes in to restore what God has called good from the beginning really matters in how they work out all of their thought. And when you look at Kuiper, you see someone who attempts to faithfully articulate this relationship between grace and nature and how that applies in every sphere. But I think we can not only ask why Kuiper, but why Kuiper's lectures as a kind of introduction to this neo-Calvinist project. And I think the lectures, first of all, distill some of the implications of this grace and nature thing really well. We see this also, of course, worked out fantastically in his colleague, Herman Bovink, and he works them out really systematically. But Kuiper works them out in a way that kind of, again, is is catchy and bold and grabs your attention. And in the lectures, he does this really self-consciously for an audience that is not his uh kind of it, it's not his homeland and it's not his home tongue. Uh and so the the lectures on Calvinism were written for Americans in a modern context and they were written for people that didn't have kind of the scaffolding of Dutch um history and polity and all of these things around them. And so in some ways they're a bit of a more likely kind of candidate for North Americans trying to figure out Kuiper and I think Rob's already made the case of why we might want to still say yes to Kuiper and some of Kuiper's ideas and explore them today. And the lectures on Calvinism as something written self-consciously by Kuiper for a place that is not his homeland and not his fellow citizens is a really interesting place to start. And many people, including Herman Doiveerd, who is a kind of second generation neo-Calvinist and later, have said these these lectures really excellently distill his main points. And so if we want to get a snapshot of who Kuiper is, especially in an American context, these lectures are a great place to start. 
Yeah, that's a great point as far as being a translation. There's almost a missiological edge to the lectures uh, that you bring out in this book. And I wonder, um, you know, you have this great division in each chapter, what Kuiper said, what Kuiperians did, what we should do. So it's very easy to follow. Uh, last year, we did a podcast interview with our common friend, Matt Kamig, and about his edited volume, Reform Public Theology, which is a book that looks forward and finds the future of neo-Calvinism outside of the Dutch world. And by contrast, this book still retains that Dutch character. It's involved and interested in what we might call primary text of, neo- of neo-Calvinism, maybe the primary text in some ways. And how would you understand the relationship between that project, which is seeking to continue that translation project, extending the Kuiperian insights, and this one, which is sort of more looking back? How do you navigate the tension between looking back and retaining sort of the importance of the Dutch roots of of this project, of this tradition, but also looking forward and realizing the future, if neo-Calvinism is to have a future, it will be by planting roots and soils of other places. Yeah, absolutely. And Matt's project is just is just a thrilling one. And what he does there is, of course, take this really global look from the Philippines to Chinese labor questions to the UK to Brazil, and on and on it goes. Um, and he takes all of these people that are already bought into the Kuiperian or Reformed project. I think that's what's key in Matt's book. He's showing the way that Kuiperian and broadly reformed roots have really taken hold in a lot of different contexts. And that for neo-Calvinist enthusiasts like me and Rob and and you, Justin, if I can speak for you too, is it really exciting to see that this thing that started, as Rob highlights in the introduction, in this small little lowlands country, this movement in the 20th century in, in this seemingly pretty small place has really mattered around the globe. And so Matt brings together just a wonderful array of people who are all bought in to the project already, and they're trying to apply it in their own context, and they're teaching us about how to apply it and what various kind of aspects of public theology and what the what reformed principles mean in various places and various contexts. And I think that is exciting. But again, the thing that all of these authors have in common is they already know this project, this reformed project. And our kind of inkling, um, and this is this is one rooted in some of our own experiences, is that yes, absolutely, a lot of people globally are bought into this reformed vision and are able to teach people from various different con- uh, contexts, shine light on the meaning um, and interpretation of different things in different places. But there are also people, both in our own context and plenty of other places, that have not really encountered these ideas and are not bought in. <laughs> um, and so our, our book is really more for that side of things where we think Kuiperian theology, neo-Calvinist insights really do have something special to offer. And they still need a kind of translation project, even as Kuiper's lectures themselves were translating in some ways his ideas for an American context to kind of invigorate and bolster and encourage and excite. We still think there there are places where these words could do the same thing. Um, but Kuiper, in some ways, sometimes gets in his own way. 
Of course, these lectures, uh, even though they were written in English, were written some time ago. And that means there are philosophical and cultural things that are alluded to that are not easily accessible to people today that aren't familiar with this project. And as I imagine we'll talk about later, uh, there are some really difficult things in these lectures. There are gems of insights, but there are also really blatant failings of Kuiper on display uh, in the lectures on Calvinism. And so for people that aren't the kind of crew that were assembled by Matt for his book that are already deeply immersed in these texts and applying them in various places, for people that are just hearing about a kind of worldviewing Christianity and hear that, you know, maybe this Kuiper guy has something to say, when they pick up lectures on Calvinism, at least, again, in the context that Rob and I have taught these in, it's really difficult to work through these texts because, A, either the the concepts um, feel a bit difficult or, B, those failings of Kuiper on display are really shown. And so people can't get into some of the insights because of the failings. Uh, and so our our intent here is really to help kind of mine the gems of what's happening in Kuiper's lectures for an audience that doesn't yet know, or maybe wants to be refreshed, but that doesn't yet know what Kuiper has potentially to offer. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I think one of the great contributions of the book is the fact that you are trying to retrieve what is most vital in these lectures, but you also refuse to gloss over those flaws. So it's not this project of saying he got everything right, you know, and all we need to do is repristinate, you know, what Kuiper was doing in our context and we'll be, we'll be fine. You know, I know when I read Kuiper 20 years ago, I was very much captivated by the expansiveness of his vision. This was a, a different sort of Calvinism than I had encountered to that point. But I was also simultaneously really put off by that posture of Eurocentric cultural and ethnic superiority that he assumes. And this has led some, like Peter Paris, to argue that the whole project is uh, to be rejected. And you have, you know, gotten Vince Baycoat to write a very helpful chapter uh, on Kuiper and race, which is obviously not a lecture that he gave. But I wonder for our listeners, if you could talk a little bit more about that, help us think about what it means to carry forward the tradition, while also challenging Kuiper's flaws, complicating the legacies, so that we're not just in this project of repristinating, but we also are able to learn from, from the past. Yeah, I, I had this experience myself a little bit when I was learning about Kuiper um, when I was an undergraduate student. Um, there was almost a fragility to the tradition, you know, that you couldn't. Uh, I, I remember, I think the biography that we were assigned of Kuiper, and yes, this really happened when I was in college, um, was the one that called him God's Renaissance man, you know, and it's like, you know, we've just, you know, turned on the baptismal fire hose and kind of, you know, hosed him down with holy water, you know, everything's amazing. And, you know, everything wasn't amazing. Um, and a lot of this comes, I think, to, you know, how can we, have a tradition that isn't fragile and breaks, but bends and grows and, and recognizes, as it were, um, you know, what the great church historian Yaroslav Pelikan called, you know, the living faith of the dead. You know, this is, this is, I think, what we're, what we're after. We want a way to, 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 to deal with our parents. And this is really what it is. But, and I mean, not just our parents, but our, our intellectual parents, our moral parents, our spiritual parents. We want a way of talking about our parents that, that honors them, that gives them dignity, you know, as the, as the <laughs> Decalogue demands. And yet, on the other hand, doesn't imagine that they're somehow perfect, right? In fact, is very candid, you know, it does them no honor. It does them no dignity. 
to look past these failings, to, um, to imagine that they're not there. Right. In fact, just the opposite. I think it actually drowns their legacy. It drowns them as persons. It drowns them as Christians. And what we need to see is, you know, Kuiper, yes, he was a larger than life personality. He was very much a modern man in a sense, you know, a man of extraordinary ability. Um, but he was also a man. He was also a Christian who hit his knees and, and every night, you know, asked the Lord, how have I served you? How have I, how have I failed you today? And in a way, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight to say, oh, some of these things are a little clearer to us than I think they were to Kuiper. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I think it really comes down to how can we deal with our parents and how do we honor them, which is not the same thing as putting them up on podiums and imagining them as perfect. So I think, I think something like the lectures, we have to have a chapter. And you're right, there's no lecture on race. But even what you take out of it, these are some of the passages where really, you know, it becomes very clear, okay, you know, we, that these, are, these are major mistakes that Kuiper had in his thought. And we can debate in terms of how he evolved and changed and, you know, how, what he was thinking about these things by the time that he died. But certainly at the point of his lectures, this was a, this was a major issue. Um, you know, he also wasn't great on gender, but we didn't include a chapter on that because he doesn't say as much in the lectures uh, about that. But this is another thing that if you were to write about Kuiper, I think would be uh, an important thing to name. Uh, so that, that was our hope. You know, we want a tradition that's alive, right? We don't want it fragile and frozen. We don't want fragile and frozen hag- hagiography. We want something that is alive and growing and bending and, and, and hearing and naming the hard things and yet at the same time carrying forward the beautiful, glorious things that get us to the heart of the gospel. And for me, that was Kuiper's project. So I think it's incredibly faithful to Kuiper to, in some cases, name Kuiper's failings. It's certainly a very Calvinistic sort of impression um, in order to recover, as it were, um, the teaching of the church at the Good News. Yeah, and I think one of the questions that uh, Vince helps us walk through in this book is is the question, and it's a really important question, is Kuiper's Eurocentric kind of leanings and is his racism at the very heart of his project and seeping out absolutely everywhere? Or is it something where where we have the potential to read Kuiper against himself and see, you know, how can even Kuiper challenge himself by taking kind of what he says in other places um, and having that kind of read against some of his more indicting uh, language around race and and Vince has talked about this, as has um, our mutual friend Jeff Liu, but have talked about how in some ways Kuiper is astonishingly baffling person on this on this topic. Um, and this is in no way to downplay how troubling uh, and sinful Kuiper's comments on race were, but it is to try to have a fulsome picture of him, which is, like Rob said, what we're attempting to do. We're attempting to honestly name the fullness of Kuiper's legacy, which has some beautiful gems and has some deeply harmful comments and legacy attached to it. And Kuiper is perplexing and baffling because on the one hand, he is this theologian that celebrates diversity. One of his favorite words in, as we kind of translate it into English is multiformity <laughs> and the pluriformity of creation. And he celebrates this going riffing off the Genesis account. He is cel- he celebrates that God has created the world in a diverse way with diversity just bursting at the seams. And then when it comes to racial diversity, Instead of seeing this as a great gift of God, he relies on things like the curse of Ham, and he relies on just really, really troubling uh, racial hierarchies instead of God's good diversity. And that is that's 
difficult to grapple with. That's complicated to grapple with to say, is there a real Kuiper? <laughs> and, and in the end, we don't try to come out and say, you know, one of these is true and one of these is not. Instead, we're simply trying to say, Kuiper said both. And that's hard. But I, but I think also a word as we're talking about Kuiper's flaws and race is important on another thing that Kuiper is associated with and well known for in some circles, probably not the same circles that would know kind of the in-depth analysis of a lecture on Calvinism or his worldview, but Kuiper's name is also associated with apartheid, um, apartheid movement in South Africa. I think it's really important to name that uh, because that is part of this really troubling, both troubling comments on race. And Vince draws out the comments that Kuiper makes in these lectures, which are not the only comments Kuiper makes, but they are the comments on the text in question. But but then there's also this connection between Kuiper and apartheid South Africa. And again, in, in this situation, I think Kuiper's legacy is both troubling and complex. Uh, Craig Bartholomew, a South African himself, Vince, both of them have done a lot of work on this, as has, um, interestingly, George Haring done on neo-Calvinism, particularly Herman Bovink and his students and their influence in South Africa. And to kind of complicate that narrative a bit, because sometimes there's a really straight line, you know, Kuiper taught pillarization, Kuiper taught racial superiority, ergo apartheid. Life usually isn't that simple. And in Kuiper's case, it's not either. But I think we do have to say there are ways that we can use the the things that Kuiper said, including racial hierarchy. Um, and we can see how that transferred and was applied in South Africa in just terrible ways. And I think being honest about legacy uh, and being honest about the ways this can be used both beautifully. We see a lot of that in this book, you know, the way Kuiper's worldview worked out in various institutions, in educational institutions in North America, um, like both of ours that we work at, Dort and Redeemer. But I think we can learn a lot by looking at how legacies not only flourish um, and help communities and institutions flourish, but also where they either flounder or have devastating impacts. And and Kuiper's legacy is is really instructive, I think, in both of those ways. So one of the distinctions I've made is between a sort of iconoclasm of cancellation and an iconoclasm of complication, uh, which you've been talking about as we wrestle with what do we do with the sins of people in the past and we could name everyone, right, in that in that category. But there are some things that are so egregious that, yeah, that kind of iconoclasm is necessary. And then there's an iconoclasm, too, where we perform iconoclasm by complicating, right, by putting other other stories and other streams, right, that the Kuyperian uh, stream has generated. So I think of Alan Bosak, for example, you know, that also came out of that in resistance to apartheid um, in South Africa. But I wonder, we've talked about what the Kuyperian tradition has to offer the wider world. Now, if we flipped it, uh, there's this great part in Rich Mao's introduction to Kuiper, where he says, Abraham Kuiper, meet Mother Teresa. So I wonder who are some other saints and figures from church history or from the wider church that you wish the Kuiperian tradition could get to know and learn from so that we could have a sort of mingling with Kuiperian sensibilities and also these gifts from these other streams? Yeah, I just, I think this is just a lovely question. And I, I want to answer with like 
20 different people and traditions that we should be learning from. But I'll, I'll just, um, choose one theme, uh, and two people I think that unpack it really well. And one of the things I think Kuiper himself and Kuiperians as they kind of live out this Kuiperian, Kuiper's vision, um, today really should learn from is, uh, traditions that emphasize lament, especially lament as it's tied to justice seeking. Because Kuiper has a lot to say about justice and a lot to say about how God has ordered things and how we should fight for justice and how we should enact justice and what that means to that a God who is just is sovereign and how we live that out today. He has wonderful things to say about that. And we can even read Mao in this Kuiper Meet Mother Teresa emphasizes some of the ways that Kuiper himself also talks about you know, the the need to look out for those who are oppressed and to fight for justice. But with Kuiper and with some of his followers, this can really turn into, in some ways, at, at its worst, a kind of triumphalism that, you know, we will do this. Um, God is on our side. We will do it. Or burnout. Um, and we see this in Kuiper's own life. Um, he had really highs and really lows. And one of the things that I think would have kind of rounded out his deep desire for justice is bringing together justice and lament. And I think in the North American church, there are, there's one book that I think of immediately, Sun Chan Ra's Prophetic Lament, which is just a wonderful piece of what it looks like to take seriously lament as a tool and as as something that we must have and a posture for us as we seek justice. Um, and I think of Esau McCulley's really popular new-ish book at this point, Reading While Black, that opens up just the richness of the Black church tradition in North America um, and the way that church tradition, too, has tied together deep lament and deep justice seeking. Yeah, if I could put um, Kuiper and Calvinistic Kuiperians uh, into dialogue, I, I I would want to put them into touch with the great American theologian, Mr. Rogers. Um, and I, I think, you know, one of the reasons for that is that, you know, I teach Calvinistic Kuiperians all the time. I've hung out in this world for quite a while, um, you know, and I've had students come to me when I've said, hey, you know, you got to tone it down. Like, you know, you're in your kind of stage cage Calvinism kind of thing, you know, uh, and they say, you know, the Bible never tells us to be nice. You know, I can't tell you how many times that I've actually heard that. I don't know where people are getting that from. The Bible never tells us to be nice. And I said, well, that's true, but it does tell us to be kind and to be gentle and to be peaceful. Um, uh, and Kuiper was a man of astonishing ability and he had incredible capacity. He burned so bright, and yet he also had such profound collapses. And I sometimes wish I could have seen, you know, uh, you know, records of, you know, Kuiper taking a turn in nursery. You know, here's, here's, here's Abraham Kuiper, you know, managing the fussy eight-month-old, you know. And I thought, this is a picture I want to see of a, of a gentler Kuiper, of somebody who's hearing, who's listening carefully. And doesn't just have an agenda and he's here and he's going to drive it through and come hell or high water, you're either in or you're out and he's going to kind of find his way. And he, he had these extraordinary abilities, but I think that he and also his, his heirs have a lot to learn from, uh, from the Mr. Rogers approach to public theology. Um, and so I would very much like to see him put into dialogue uh, uh, there. I'd love to see that episode um, happen someday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finally, 
the title of your book is Calvinism for a Secular Age. And so what do you mean by a secular age? And why is the vision set forth in Kuiper's lectures and taken up by later Kuiperians especially generative for secular age? And it's, it's interesting to have both a theologian and a political scientist weighing in on this question. Why do Christians living in a pluralistic, secular environment benefit from revisiting these lectures? And how do these help us move forward in such polarized times? Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised actually that, um, that nobody's actually sort of criticized us for, you know, using the term secular age, but not then defining it at great and great philosophical length in the book. Um, we don't do that. And it's, it's clearly an invocation on, you know, Taylor's magisterial work, A Secular Age. And, you know, he lays out in A Secular Age and then in a much more slender volume, um, The Malaise of Modernity, I think in America, it's published as The Ethics of Authenticity, these three pathologies of the modern moral order. And I, I actually think Jess and I have a little piece that is is going to be coming out in In All Things that lays some of these out. Um, so I won't belabor it. But, you know, he talks about, you know, the pathology of kind of individual authenticity, the pathology of consequentialism and the collapse of ethics and the pathology of the kind of double loss of freedom. That's Taylor's description of where we are now, right? And of course, that's out of, you know, Kuiper's writing these lectures, you know, 100 years beforehand. And yet, in a way, what he's offering in those lectures is so prophetically sort of generative for answering those pathologies, right? Against individualist authenticity, he says, you know, not to crib Alan Noble's book, but I think he got, he got it from uh, the Heidelberg, uh, you know, you're somewhere, you're not your own, right? And in a way, that's terrifying, but in a way, it's also comforting. You are not your own. And, and contra the consequentialism of ethics of, you, you know, um, how should we live if I am the only arbiter, if the arbiter of my is, uh, if the arbiter of my ethical activity is what is generative for myself, for my sense of identity. Kuiper says, no, you are not your own. You belong, right? You are in a community. You are not born into nowhere, right? Your ethics are not tabula rasa. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, contra the double loss of freedom, you know, on the one hand, this is that, you know, what Alexei de Tocqueville talked about in Democracy of America, we have, you know, people trapped in what he called the little vulgar pleasures. Uh, or on the other hand, the new emergence of tyranny, Kuiper gives us a picture of how can we hold this thing together? How can we live together lives of gratitude? And so, I mean, in a way, I think, you know, uh, Kuiper is channeling in his lectures on Calvinism, you know, the whole kind of, you know, three-part structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, which gives this beautiful answer to Taylor's pathologies. You know, you are not your own. You belong. We can live together, right? There is this profound hope. And I think it's extraordinary because Kuiper is intuiting crises that he sees in his genius that are coming. Right. And he says, this is the kind of Calvinism. And maybe he was right. Maybe at the time, you know, uh, you know, America wasn't ready for that kind of Calvinism because they thought, ah, you know, we're not going to be there yet. But maybe we are now. Maybe this is the year that we say, oh, that's what he was getting at. I feel a little bit like the core student when I was an undergraduate who never really read a lot of what I was assigned. And then 10 years later, I found out, oh, wow, was that book important that I never read? That really answers some fundamental questions I didn't know I needed to be asking. And I think it's part of our hope that that's a bit of what Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism can do for us today, that they're answering questions that some of us didn't know we needed to ask, but boy, we desperately need them like oxygen in the lungs now. Uh, and, uh, uh, and for me, I think that's part of what uh, sets up this Calvinism for a secular age. It is a 21st century reception. That's the, that's the premise, right? It's not, we're not just trying to sort of restate the thing as it sort of emerged in the 19th century. We're trying to say, how can this be generative for our lives today? And, and I'm very optimistic that it can be and that it is.
Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And one of the challenges, of course, Taylor lays this out, uh, and Kuiper does too, as he responds, especially in his lecture, uh, Calvinism and religion, to some of the challenges of religion already in his own day. And then they sound in some ways very familiar about challenges of religion in our day today, uh, where religion is either seen as this thing that should be privatized or nothing. Uh, because if it's not privatized and it's made public, it's a kind of theocratic mess. <laughs> and Kuiper gives us a way to avoid either a kind of imposing a theocratic type way of doing things, which is, I think, one of one of the stigmas often associated with any kind of public religion in a secular age or a simply privatized religion that says, I'm going to care about this. I care about this on Sunday and in my own little life in personal devotions. And that's wonderful. But to to have a faith that's robustly uh, rich and devotional. But Kuiper says it doesn't have to be either one of those. I can have a public faith that also is not threatened by a diverse society. And I can take that public faith and I can work alongside my Sikh neighbor and I can work alongside my Muslim neighbor and I can work alongside my nun neighbor, N-O-N-E neighbor. Um, and I have categories, says Kuiper, for de- for understanding that. I have categories of understanding why we have commonality. I have theological language for that, things like common grace. Uh, But I also have language for why the world is broken the way that it is, his language of things like antithesis. And that kind of language and that pluralist bent that says faith is public, even in a place where faith is not shared, is a really powerful word today. I know for some of my students, as they, as we walk through um, Charles Taylor in various classes, they'll say, well, I I still live in in a place where everyone goes to church, everyone's Christian. I'm at a Christian university, and that may be the case uh, for my students, Justin, for many of yours. But that's not the reality of all of North America. Nor does that mean again that some of Charles Taylor's kind of pathologies aren't even in that space, in that space where faith is shared. And I think Kuiper in a kind of prescient way, and then as Kuyperians deeply rooted in his thought, apply and mine the gems of his wisdom um, and his insights for our day, I think they do both give us really helpful concepts to make sense of our place in time, things like common grace and antithesis and beyond. And I think it also helps us navigate a posture to have a public faith, even if that public faith is not shared. The book is Calvinism for a Secular Age, a 21st century reading of Abraham Kuyper's Stone Lectures. Our guests have been Jess and Rob Joustra. Jess, Rob, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Yeah, such thanks a pleasure. For having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org, or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.